Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message, and God bless. You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue our study uh, in the book of Romans. If you want to open up with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 16 uh, this morning. Romans chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. Uh, You'll want to leave your Bible open because we'll be going verse by verse uh, through these 16 verses, similar to what we've done the last couple of weeks. And just a quick reminder, because it applies uh, specifically to the content that we're going to be talking about today. And, and, and here's the understanding with the book of Romans. Uh, it builds upon itself. So in Romans chapter 1, uh, we looked at, um, you know, that God has uh, revealed himself uh, to mankind. Uh, that uh, through his, uh, you know, uh, invisible attributes, meaning we see him in creation, uh, we see his power manifested with the sun in the sky, uh, in the sky and the moon and the earth and all of the animals that dwell upon it. We see his his hand, his design, his handiwork. So his power and uh, creation to uh, have evidence that uh, God does indeed exist. We uh, know based the the conscience that we all have that each of us is born with a knowledge of the basic knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, then we looked uh, last week as we finished up chapter 1, we, we looked where uh, Paul begins to address the, uh, the, the carnality of man and the rebelliousness of man towards God in general and uh, how that man has uh, over, uh, over the, the centuries uh, the millennia, uh, how uh, man has, uh, you know, become more and more uh, corrupted, uh, and uh, he went in uh, detail as it relates to sexual sin uh, and, uh, you know, um, exchanging the natural use of a, of a man. Women were uh, having sex with other women, and men were having sex with other men, uh, which was uh, a sin uh, before God. And then, uh, not just that, he, he listed a whole a slew of other sins that, uh, you know, uh, we as mankind participate in, uh, you know, uh, immorality and other forms of sexual immorality like uh, fornication and adultery. Um, You know, God mentioned this whole list of sins, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, and I'm not going to go through all of them this morning, but he lists, uh, Paul lists uh, quite an extensive list there of the sins. And so uh, what he's doing here in in chapter one is he's laying bare. uh, This is what the state of society is without God. Uh, And then if we continue to ignore God and rebel against God, that uh, God will eventually, if you remember three times the phrase, give, give us up or give man up, uh, meaning that he basically says, all right, uh, you have decided that you're going to rebel against me and live as if I do not exist and participate in these behaviors no matter what. You're going to ignore your conscience. 
Uh, you're going to ignore my existence, and so uh, I'm going to give you up to your sentence. That's what the Greek there means, is that uh, being given up to uh, your sentence that you've been given by a judge, and that God's wrath would be poured out. Uh, we looked at God's wrath is poured out both passively and actively, and uh, that uh, we face the consequences of our behaviors naturally in the world when we choose to rebel against God's perfect plan. Uh, and, and as it relates to this earth and, and the life of man, uh, but also God's active wrath where he directly intervenes, such as the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or Ananias and Sapphira uh, in the New Testament, where God uh, intervenes because the sin has become so great and the rebellious is so great that he must uh, make it an example uh, of those who are participating in those behaviors where God uh, finally has had enough. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in our world today, uh, you know, God turns over man uh, to his uh, most base desires. If we're going to continue to be rebellious, then God will eventually say, all right, I'm turning you over. Uh, I'm not, you're no longer going to have my favor. You're no longer going to, you know, be protected by me. I'm, I'm going to leave you alone. That's what you wanted. So I'm going to leave you alone. Uh, in chapter two, he's going to build upon this because he's, uh, he's anticipating that he's going to have uh, readers uh, of this letter who are going to say, well, I'm not that bad. Right? He's got readers that are going to say, I don't hate God. Readers that say, uh, I don't backbite. Readers that say, I don't lie. Readers that say, I don't participate in any kind of uh, sexual immorality, whatever that case may be. Right? I'm not covetous. Uh, all of those sins that Paul has listed, I acknowledge that God's existed. I'm not searing my conscience. You know, I'm 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 living uh, uh, the uh, pretty good life. I'm a good person, right? Right. Uh, that that's what he's going to address. Is is people reading that list of all of these sins and the person coming away going, "Hey, I'm not so bad." <laughs> right. I'm I'm a, I'm a good person. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I actually uh, had a few comments last week from a, a few different people about that list of sins and, you know, uh, realizing that, wow, uh, that was, uh, that was uh, interesting because I didn't realize how bad I was. I had a few people come up to me and make that comment last week. Uh, but the, the truth is, is that many people will look at that list and, and rather be convicted, they will try to uh, justify themselves and say, hey, I'm a good person, so therefore I don't deserve God's wrath. I don't deserve God's judgment. I don't deserve what Paul says, the wages of sin is death, that, that we uh, all have sinned, and that, the, that the, the result, the ultimate consequence of death uh, of sin is death and destruction, not only of our, our physical bodies, but also eventually of our uh, spirit, our soul, our, that spiritual body uh, will be, you know, suffer greatly uh, in hell and uh, we're separated from God. Uh, and so Paul wants to make sure those people understand uh, that uh, when they look at this and they come to the conclusion that they're not so bad after all, that they recognize that, oh, you have no excuses. Uh, when I was in high school and took exams, uh, exams have pretty much been replaced with SOLs now. But when I was in high school, you didn't have those standardized uh, learning tests. You took exams. And uh, if you did well enough throughout the year, essentially got A's, 
throughout the year, uh, you did not, you could become exempt for that final exam. You always had to take the midterm, but if you did well enough, uh, you could actually be exempt from that final exam. Uh, and many people live their lives thinking, I've been good enough, uh, and uh, so therefore, I, uh, I can be exempt from, uh, from this punishment. It really doesn't apply to me. I know for me, uh, I had a few of those exams that I was able to be exempt uh, from a time or two, but there was also a few that I, I, I couldn't be exempt from because I did not do a very good job. Uh, but I remember one of the things that we would do in high school is we would brag about how many exams we were exempt from, you know, but we didn't talk about the ones that we weren't exempt from. <laughs> Right, because those were the embarrassing ones. Uh, you you wanted to brag about the ones that you were exempt from, and, and we have not changed as a, a, a society. You know, we like to focus on what is good about us, but we like to ignore where we struggle. And so Paul is going to say, "Look, uh, you may be what society would consider a, a a good person, but in the sight of God, we all have sin." And he wants to make sure that we all know that we need Jesus Christ. Amen. That we all need uh, God. And so if you look with me now into uh, Romans chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 1. He says, Therefore, you are uh, inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So what Paul is saying here is that, uh, you know, we, we are without excuse because the uh, those who would consider themselves to have been moral Jews or moral Gentiles, Gentiles being everyone that's not a Jew, uh, that the, those that would consider themselves moral would again uh, consider themselves exempt from God's judgment because they hadn't indulged in all those immoral excesses in chapter 1. Uh, and so they might be feeling pretty good about themselves, but he says, hey, you're not excusable. You're not excusable. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, you may be a religious person, you might be a good person, but without Christ, my friend, you're lost. Without Christ, we are lost. So he says, therefore you are inexcusable. So who are you to judge? Who are you and I uh, to judge, not just... Uh, judge others, but to judge ourselves as being righteous. We're not in a position to judge ourselves as righteous. There's only one judge, that's Jesus Christ, that's God, who sits upon the throne, who decides whether we're righteous or unrighteous, and here's the deal, we're all unrighteous. There's only one person who's ever walked on the face of this earth that was born righteous, born perfect, and lived a perfect life. And that was Jesus Christ. He then says, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Meaning that if you and I have sufficient knowledge to judge others on what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, then we are actually condemning ourselves. Why? Uh, because it shows that we have a knowledge of what's right and wrong and how to evaluate our own condition. Amen. So if we're busy pointing fingers at others and saying, well, you're a mess up and you're a mess up and you've done this and you've done that and wow, I haven't participated in that or wow, that's a terrible thing. Uh, you know, uh, we are now saying we know better. <laughs> right? We're, we're, when we judge others, 
and their uh, behaviors uh, and rebelliousness towards God, uh, we are saying we know better. And then Paul goes on to say, not only do you judge others that you don't have a right to judge, but when you're judging others, you're practicing the same things. Oh my goodness, what hypocrisy there exists within the body of Christ where we like to judge others and point fingers and devour our own while we're doing the same behaviors we just haven't been found out yet. Amen. Right? Well, we just haven't been discovered yet. You know, we like to point fingers and, you know, I've been guilty a time or two on preaching a sermon that convicted me. Personally, right, I'm preaching a sermon to the church, uh, uh, to you guys, and I'm convicted because, hey, I've been known to watch that Netflix show that I probably shouldn't watch. I've been known to maybe tell a lie here and there, right? Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, Paul's saying, look, how dare we uh, set in judgment of others when we practice the same things? When we participate in the same behaviors. The very definition of self-righteousness. Who do we think we are that we would elevate ourselves to the position that we would condemn others, judge others, gossip about others, and what they struggle with, yet ignore our own sin. And when we, we condemn others, but excuse ourselves. John MacArthur writes, self-righteousness exists because of two deadly errors. One, we minimize God's moral standard, usually by emphasizing the externals, right? And that's a, a lot of what the Pharisees did, is they emphasized the external rituals, right? Uh, if you'll recall, there was a time the disciples were uh, eating, and they didn't wash their hands first. And the Pharisee says, uh, they're breaking the law. That's a rule that we have, a regulation, that you wash your hands first before you eat. Uh, and Jesus said, hey, uh, what good is the regulations on the outside if the inside is all dirty and nasty? Mm -hmm. They'll be focused on the, the, the uh, traditions of man making sure that we look all obedient on the outside when at home uh, we're immoral and rebellious before God. Right, And so in that self-righteousness, we condemn others. Uh, and then ultimately what we're really doing is condemning ourselves as well. There's only one standard to measure ourselves against, and that is Jesus Christ. My mom used to do an object lesson many times uh, where she would uh, show, uh, have a, a, a yardstick, and then she'd have us get a big branch from one of the trees in the backyard. And first she'd sow the branch and... Uh, you know, uh, you know the, the, the metaphor being, you know, that's us, but then sometimes we look at that crooked branch and say, well, we're not as crooked as that branch is. Mm -hmm. Right? And so uh, I have a, a family member uh, who likes to look and say, well, I'm not that bad compared to this person. Right? Uh, I could be doing this. I could be doing that. Uh, I, I'm pretty good, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. But the problem is, is that when we take God's word and his standard... Mom would take the yardstick, which is perfectly straight, right? And stand it up against that crooked branch. So when you and I are comparing ourselves against the actual standard, which is God's law and God's rules and God's purpose for our lives, we're as crooked as any other branch. Amen. Because the standard that we should be comparing ourselves against is Christ and God's word, not against other people. Because we're all crooked. Amen. 
It's just some may be more crooked than others, but we're all crooked. For example, you may not be a murderer, but you may hate someone in your heart. You may not be, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, committing adultery, but we lust in our hearts. And so uh, we condemn uh, others and compare ourselves against others, but we are as guilty. Uh, so when you and I are judged, we are, we are judged by God's truth. When God is looking at us, we are look to look at God's truth. And then uh, God looks at us. Uh, so let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you thank this, O man, uh, you uh, who have uh, judged, uh, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you escape the judgment of God? So do we, he, he wants us to know that when we look at the truth of God's word and we compare ourselves against God's standard, do we really believe that when we compare ourselves up against God's standard, that we're good enough uh, to, to be uh, passed over and not have to experience the judgment of God. That we can escape God's judgment because we're not as crooked as somebody else. They're not our standard. And so Paul is saying here in verses 2 and 3, we cannot surmise in ourselves, we're not in a position to judge ourselves, to say that we're okay. Uh, who are we to expect that we would uh, be exempt from God's judgment. Because compared to the truth uh, that Paul is speaking about here, you and I are all very much uh, not uh, uh, up to that standard of right and wrong. And so when God looks at us, uh, man will be judged by God's truth and God's truth alone. Uh, if Psalms 96, 13 says, Before the Lord, uh, the Lord is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth, and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Notice that. He is going to judge the world with his truth. Uh, we live in a society today where we like to hear, that's my truth. Right. Well, there's only one truth. There can't be multiple truths about the same subject. It's either right or wrong. Right? And so uh, you, you don't have multiple truths. I don't get to look at God's word and God's standard and decide that, you know what, my truth is different than his, but it's still my truth. Uh, if you and I are, are not, will not be judged by our truth, we're going to be judged by God's truth. And God's truth is any word on any subject. Amen. Uh, whether we like it or not. We have Christians today uh, who are looking at God's word and they are picking and choosing what pieces to follow and what pieces not to follow and then justifying in themselves uh, that why they're okay and participating in that behavior that is against God. But God says, I am going to judge this world and each one of us will be judged based on his truth, not what we surmise as being our truth. So there's no avoiding the judgment of God, no matter how good we think we are, and no matter how much we try to justify our sin. Uh, we've got uh, people today who are finding reasons. Uh, either they'll just say we're following the red letters, which are the words of Jesus only. And we're not looking at any of the epistles. We're not looking at any of the surrounding context or any of the other things that are uh, written uh, in, in the Word. Uh, and and uh, the truth is, 
is that uh, the whole Bible is, we believe, inspired by God from Genesis to Revelation. And God has manifested himself through his word, right? And so therefore, all of it is accurate. And all of it is uh, uh, important to us. And here's the thing I've heard many times when we talk about the sins that are, are specifically the ones that our society get hung up on, right? Sexual immorality, right? Uh, you know, uh, participating in sexual behaviors, sex outside of marriage, you know, homosexuality, uh, uh, those types of behaviors. They like to say, well, Jesus never addressed those things. Or the other argument is, well, that's the Old Testament. How come we're not following all, the, all, all of the Old Testament rules? Uh, and the thing is, is that we live in the age of grace. And when Jesus came, he didn't come to wipe away the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law, meaning the law's purpose, as Paul is going to tell us uh, later on in the book of Romans, is to show us how woefully short we are. Right. And that we can never be obedient to it, no matter how hard we try, we will always break at least one tenet in the law. Therefore, breaking one rule makes us guilty before God and deserving of judgment. God requires holiness and perfection, and none of us are perfect. Adam and Eve made one mistake, and yet that one mistake caused them to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God didn't say, oh, you know, you only messed up once, I'm going to give you another shot. No, his standard is, once one act of rebelliousness is, re results in death, and so we need him a savior, which is why Jesus Christ was sent. So the Old Testament is important to show us what we cannot live up to. The law shows us what we cannot live up to, but Jesus Christ says, I came and gave my life because I know that you can never live up to the law 100%. And so therefore, I'm giving my life for you to pay the price, which is death for your sin. And if you and I will accept him as Lord and Savior and accept that sacrifice and confess our, uh, our dependence upon him and make him Lord of our life, then we're forgiven and we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Why? Because Jesus said that all the law could be summed up in two commands. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we will do those two things and live our lives according to those two principles, then we will be, uh, live a right life before God. Love God and love people. We'll also be judged uh, by our guilt. Uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, uh, or do you despise the riches of of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is to lead you to repentance. And so he says here uh, in verse uh, 4, or do you despise? That literally in the Greek means to think down on. It's to under, uh, underestimate something's value and even treat it with contempt. Uh, we have uh, uh, something that we have uh, stored in our garage. It's something my wife uh, holds dear to her heart. It, it's an old-time uh, wooden refrigerator. Uh, I don't know uh, exactly how old it is, but in good condition, it's worth a, a quite a bit of money. At least, you know, uh, I think it's worth like $3,300, maybe a little more than that. But when you look at it, it certainly doesn't look like 
uh, that much, right? Uh, I, I paid less for my living room furniture than this one piece of, uh, of furniture is supposed to be worth. It's, it's about this wide and about this tall. And you can see that over the years, people took it for granted because they set cups of water on it or they set paint on it and they've ruined the finish uh, of this refrigerator where it just sat over time and it wasn't appreciated. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what we do with, with, with Christ is we don't appreciate and we set him aside right until we need him or the world decides that they don't appreciate his sacrifice and what he did. They don't understand, uh, you know, how lost they are and how much they need him. And so they look down upon him and they also look down upon the people that have chosen to make God uh, uh, the Christ, the Lord of their life, and they treat it with contempt, and you see that in society today. Treating God with contempt and the sacrifices of God, uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, with contempt. He says also in verse 4, uh, we despise what? The riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering. When we talk to about God's goodness, this is specifically is referenced here in chapter uh, uh, verse 4. It's talking about God's common grace, the benefit that God just, uh, just uh, uh, grants or gives uh, and bestows on all men. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and seems rain on the just and on the unjust. J. Vernon McGee writes, we ought to recognize today that the goodness of God is something that ought to bring us to our knees before him. But instead of that, it drives men from God. We mistake God's goodness as our own resourcefulness. We, 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 we mistake the favor of God, the goodness of God upon mankind in general as our man's ingenuity and resourcefulness. And, well, we definitely uh, live in a, a world today uh, where uh, we like to take pride uh, in our uh, accomplishments and we're prideful and we're arrogant, not realizing that it is God's goodness that has brought us to where we're at. It is God's goodness in the way that he created us with the ability to think and reason. He created us above the animals and just a little bit below the angels. Right? We are uh, uh, above all of creation. Uh, on top of that, God allows the rain to fall and God allows the sun to shine and God has given man the knowledge to be able to harvest, right? And be able to reap. But uh, uh, God has given man the, uh, uh, the curiosity to try different things and to do different things. That is all placed inside of us by God. But we take it for granted believing somehow that it's all about us. But you don't have a high IQ uh, because of you. You have an I IQ. You're born with that IQ. You're born, and I are born that way. And we are blessed by God, and God blesses the righteous and the unrighteous. That is his general goodness. But man looks upon general God's goodness and equates it and says, hey, uh, this is actually how good I am, and ignores God. 
We ignore God's forbearance. Mankind ignores his, ignores his forbearance. That word forbearance literally means to hold back. It is sometimes or was sometimes used, that Greek word, to describe a truce between warring parties. So rather than God destroying every person the moment that that person sins, God graciously holds back his judgment. That's God's forbearance. He chooses not to destroy man when man sins uh, uh, commits sin immediately. And like God's goodness, man will use God's forbearance as an excuse to run from God instead of to God. Hey, I got away with it. Mm -hmm. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. I got away with stealing. And so we do it again, and we do it again. Mankind does it again. And they see God's forbearance and God's mercy and they, reach, they, they take it for granted. Amen. And we've all, uh, even those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior, we have taken God's forbearance for granted. The fact that he doesn't immediately zap us when we sin. Because the wages of sin is death. I mean, it was God's mercy and forbearance that even though Adam and Eve had to suffer, that he didn't immediately strike them dead. Because he very well in every right could have physically killed them and started over right then. But he did not because he had a plan that was greater than just Adam and Eve. It involved you. Right? God knew your name before he ever formed the earth from nothingness. Before he ever created Adam and Eve, God already knew you and me. Amen. Right? He had a greater plan. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 speaks of mistaking God's inaction as God's apathy. It says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. We'll do it as long as we can get away with it. And it says, uh, we ignore God's long-suffering. We take for granted God's long-suffering. This word, long-suffering, indicate, indicates the duration for which God demonstrates his goodness and his forbearance, which is what? For long periods of time. God is patient, and God is long-suffering, and uh, he demonstrates his goodness to man. He demonstrates his forbearance. Uh, to man, and that long suffering is the amount of time. Second Peter chapter three verse nine says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Ultimately, God wants everyone to be saved, and that's why He continues to demonstrate his long-suffering so that everyone has a chance to accept him or reject him. But there is coming a time when God's long-suffering will come to an end, at which point he will judge the world and he will exact judgment upon this world and upon man who has continued to reject him. So let us not take his long-suffering for granted any longer. 
He says, in, and finally in verse 4, not knowing that the goodness of God is supposed, uh, he says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. I like to add the word supposed in there because the truth is we don't pay attention. I would say not knowing that the goodness of God is supposed to lead you to repentance. The purpose of God's goodness, the purpose of his forbearance, the purpose of his long suffering should lead man to seek God and to fall down before him instead of causing him to run from God. Matthew Henry says, see here what method God takes to bring sinners to repentance. He leads them. He does not drive them like beasts, but he leads them like rational creatures, allures them, and it is goodness that leads. God does not drive or force man to accept him. He leads man. He draws man, but he does not hurt us like cattle. And so therefore, we can reject his goodness and we can reject his forbearance and his long-suffering. Look at verse 5. He says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So he says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, uh, that hardness is where we get the English word uh, uh, sclerosis, uh, as in arter uh, arteriosclerosis, which is a hardening of the arteries. It comes from this Greek word translated hardness. And so what Paul is saying here is that our hearts get hard. And of course he's talking about the center of us. We become hard, hardened before God and his goodness desensitized to God's goodness. Essentially, we harden ourselves and we prevent ourselves from being able to hear God's voice, be convicted by that conscience, uh, being able to be drawn by God because we are hardening our hearts, much like uh, uh, our, heart, our, our arteries can be clogged and hardened uh, with plaque, over time with plaque. And that other word, impetinent, means a refusal to repent and accept God's pardon of sin through Jesus Christ. And so, uh, we, due to our hardness of heart, due to our unrepentance, what are we doing? We are treasuring up for ourselves wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The world is literally treasuring up for itself wrath. If we continue to live rebelliously before God and ignore Jesus Christ and commit the behaviors that Paul has talked about, we continue to live as if God does not exist. If man continues to live without repenting and ignoring God, we are treasuring up ourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Continuing to reject God's offer of forgiveness and to cling to one's sin ensures God's wrath and his Judgment. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 10 to 29. The very first time I read this, however many years ago it was, my goodness, did it convict me. He says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversary. Anyone uh, who has rejected Moses' law, he dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be uh, thought worthy who has tempted the Son of God under or trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? If man continues in his sinful behavior before God, especially after he has a knowledge of the truth, it's the same as trampling Christ's sacrifice upon the ground, walking on it. And one of the most despicable things that man can do is to step on something. Right? I remember when I was in high school, just silliness, but it shows our mentality. When guys would get their new sneakers, if you accidentally stepped on them, that was considered the worst disrespect. And so take this up to a whole nother level. When we are disrespecting Christ's sacrifice by ignoring it, we are simply, we are, it's the same as treading upon his blood, saying this is useless. Means nothing. Finally, verse 6 tells us that we'll be, be God looks upon our deeds. It says, and who will render to each one according to uh, his deeds. So we are treasuring up wrath uh, in heaven. And that word treasure, it means that uh, we're keep adding to it as if we uh, are living rebelliousness before God, rebelliously before God. And it is our deeds that are building up that wrath. That word deeds there. Um, means that we are to be patient and continuance in doing good works, uh, to doing what is good. We'll be judged by that. And when we do not do good works, there are consequences for not doing that, right? Uh, both for the Christian and the unchristian. The one who's not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior will be judged according to their rebelliousness before God. Uh, and they will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. You and I, as believers in Christ, God's looking at our deeds as well. And while we will not be eternally punished, uh, our reward is based upon what, how, what work we do on heaven. Now, our salvation is not. We are saved by grace alone. But if you and I experience true saving grace and salvation, it will result in good works. That will be the result. James chapter 2, 15 through 17 says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We are expected as believers to perform good works, to do good deeds, uh, and, 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 and if we are not, we need to take a, a look at ourselves and say, why aren't we? Are we taking Christ's sacrifice for granted? Because if we know Christ is Lord and Savior, it should result in obedience and serving others. Yes. And ultimately, for you and I, there'll be a reward. Not We will have eternal life. And that's not just about duration. Because listen to this. Everyone has eternal life. It's where you spend eternity that matters. So when we're talking about this reward, uh, your reward is either eternal punishment or living in heaven and having a much more pleasant experience. Everyone lives for eternity, but our reward is not just eternal life, 
but also the quality of that eternal life. Do we live our that, those that eternity in suffering and judgment, or do we live that eternity in heaven? He says, let's look now at verses 8 and 9, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Again, here we go. The redeemed will be judged by their deeds. The redeemed will get a reward. And now the unredeemed, they also will be judged by their deeds. Uh, they'll be self, they're self-seeking. They don't obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. They're selfish, self-centered, only looking out for themselves, only worried about how they're impacted, only worried about the quality of their life. And they will be judged for it. And their reward is not only eternal life, but what it says there is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. I don't know about you, but I certainly do not want to suffer God's indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on this earth or in eternity. But man who continues to reject God will be judged by his deeds, and there will be a reward. It's just not a good reward. There will be consequences uh, uh, for that. Let's look now at verses 11 through 15. When man is judged by God, when God looks upon man, he does so with impartiality. For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as sin and the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles do not, uh, do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these also, uh, although not having law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So let's look at this. For first it says, for there is no partiality before or with God. It literally means to receive a face. And what that means here is that regardless of someone's position, wealth, influence, popularity, or appearance, they are all equal before God. Uh, so in this world, as I have many times said uh, behind this pulpit, uh, that uh, salvation is the great equalizer. No matter uh, who we are, no matter where we are, according to society's standards, uh, you and I, uh, uh, God sees us all the same, lost and in need of a Savior. And so therefore, the, uh, the, 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 the wealthiest and the poorest, the social elite and the social pariah, all are equal at the foot of the cross. Amen. And so God uh, shows no partiality. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Uh, the Gentiles who never had the opportunity to know God's moral law specifically, they still will be judged uh, in dis uh, on their disobedience and their relationship even to their limited knowledge. So even that limited knowledge that God places in our minds as humans when we're born, that conscience, it will judge us. Why? Because even with that limited knowledge, we still sin. Man still sin. Even without the revelation of the law of God, even without the revelation 
of the uh, of of who God is uh, of, of of God's law, specifically the written law. We have that conscience inside of us where God has written a moral law and when we know it's wrong to murder and we murder anyways, that's sin and that condemns us before God. Right? So there is no excuse. There are no exemptions for anybody. And as many as have sinned in the law, we be judged by the law. So those, those Jews and the Gentiles uh, who have actually had the opportunity to uh, be given the law of God. You've been taught, and I have been taught, if you've been in church any amount of time, the Ten Commandments, the only ten, those ten rules that all of us have broken at some point, at some way, we've broken, uh, you know, uh, those uh, ten rules, that makes us guilty before God. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, rich, poor, educated, not educated, if we have broke the law of God, whether it is the law that he has written upon our hearts, that limited law, or if we have been given the full law of God and know it, anytime we break that law, we are judged by that law because it lets us know that we know right from wrong. And so therefore, we are guilty before God. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What that means there is that if you and I hear the law of God, know the law of God, but do not act upon it, then it's sin. So what he's saying here is if you know the Ten Commandments and you don't obey the Ten Commandments, it's sin. He's just reiterating that. So even if you've heard the law, and, and what he's talking here specifically are the Jews who had the revelation of that law, they call it the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Right? If you got that and you ignore it, you're guilty. Because just having it doesn't justify you. You break one rule, you're guilty of all of breaking them all. Okay? So for when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these also uh, these although not having law are a law to themselves. Again, as I stated before. Even if they do the things uh, uh, inadvertently, uh, do the things uh, that are in the law, they practice some good deeds, and they have aversion to some forms of evil, they demonstrate an, an innate knowledge of God's law, and so therefore, when they break that law, that knowledge, even that limited knowledge, is actually a witness against them when they stand before judgment. Right? Even those basic tenets who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, uh, also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing them or else excusing them. And as you and I know, no one can be perfectly obedient, not only to the law, but also upon our hearts. Because I will tell you that as a child I sinned. I lied to my mom. I did things that were wrong. I stole a cookie off the counter even though I've been told not to. Right? Even children sin. And so none of us can say that we are without sin. Uh, the uh, phrase there, um, the, their conscience also bearing witness, literally means with knowledge, meaning they sin, they have the knowledge, and they choose uh, to uh, disobey it. It is that extensive, extensive sense of right and wrong that produces guilt when we 
violate that sense. And then finally, we, when God looks at us, he looks at our motives. Verse 16. And the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. When you and I ultimately will stand before God, God will judge our motives. It doesn't matter how many great things we do for the kingdom of God. If we are doing it for recognition and selfish motives, then we already got our reward. Amen. That's why it says, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. If you're giving, don't let anyone see you give. When you pray, shut yourself away. When you fast, don't let everyone know you're fasting. When you're serving God, you don't need to advertise it. Because when we begin to advertise it and brag on ourselves that it's impure motives and our reward is in the praise that we get from others, not from God. Amen. And God knows what it is that we did selfishly and what we did selflessly. Mm -hmm. He knows both of those things. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God tests the mind. God knows our motives. God knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us, good, bad, and ugly. We can't hide it from him. And so you and I will, will uh, God look, uh, will look upon our motives. Apostle Paul talked about this in the book of Corinthians when he said that the foundation that we build our, our lives upon after salvation is Christ. And upon that foundation, we can either build with precious metals that will last forever, or we could build with hay and straw. Hay and straw are all those things that I do that have no eternal value, or I did with selfish motives. The other, the, the precious metals are the things that I did that have eternal value, and I did selflessly. Those things remain. And what I'm afraid is I know that when I stand before God, there's going to be a lot of hay and stubble that gets burned away. I think there'll be a lot of us who stand before God, a lot of people that did a lot of work. What, what was it? They said, I cast out demons in your name. I did this. I did X. I did Y. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. There will be a lot of people that have said they've done a lot of things, preached a lot of sermons, taught a lot of classes with impure motives. And that will all just be burned away. J. Vernon McGee says, as a boy I used to pick cotton, and I wasn't very good at it. I'd bring in a sack of cotton to be weighed, and uh, they only weighed what I brought in. The man weighing the cotton didn't ask me where I picked it or how I picked it or to whom it belonged. He just weighed it, meaning he didn't care if he stole it or not. He got the cotton and he got paid for the cotton. Didn't care where it came from. You, you got paid for the cotton no matter what. Here's the thing, though. God knows where we picked our cotton. Wow. He knows if we picked our cotton, and he knows the attitude that we had when we picked our cotton. Wow. Mm -hmm. And he don't accept cotton that was stolen. He doesn't accept cotton when we took credit for what someone else did. And he doesn't accept cotton when we did it with impure motives. That's, you know, very convicting uh, to the believer. Uh, but God will judge us all uh, by those things. Let us stand.
Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month, we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach the loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.